everyone, welcome to Blunder Phonics, where we put music's most troubled productions to tape. I'm Jack Durback. Whoa, 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 whoa. Coming in too hot. I'm Spencer Faust. You come in at that volume again and you're gonna scare off Steely Dan. I I'm sorry. The man is easily agitated. Yes, today we are talking about Steely Dan. Spencer, you just said I'm gonna scare Steely Dan the person. I wanna ask, what exactly you know about this band? Because it's not one guy. Oh, no, no, no. Not one guy. I know at the very least it's not one guy and that they are a uh, a jazz rock group is what I would call them. I will tell you that it's refreshing. It's refreshing this homework you've given me this week, Jack, because I've recently started to wonder if I've wasted my youth listening to all this angry, angry music. <laughs> Maybe I've taken some years off my life, you know, with your Panteras, your Motorheads, this Rise Against the Machine. Oh my god. Maybe it's been rotten my ears and rotten my soul, Jack, because when I put on today's album, I just feel like a new man. I cannot wait to learn more about it. I don't know if you're being genuine with me because I did not expect this reaction from you at all. <laughs> it is a rainy Saturday afternoon. I've got my seasonal fall beer. I put on this album and I just, listen, Jack, I haven't felt this smooth since Masayoshi Takanaka's Rainbow Goblins. Understand, of course, that that album isn't getting topped, obviously, but I'm still <laughs> fond of both the grooves and the jives coming off this album. That is genuine. I'm going to be completely honest with you. I never pegged you as a fan of jazz rock or jazz fusion, but between that Rainbow Goblin album that you found, I'm assuming in some deep, dark crevice of the universe, because I've never heard of it until you brought it up. It was a friend of mine who was stoned off his ass. and was just, was just like, you want to hear this, man? It's crazy. Between your love for that and your apparent fascination with Gaucho by Steely Dan, I, I feel like you need to listen to some of Steely Dan's back catalog after this, because they are the exact antithesis to everything you just described to me, that angry, rebellious rock and roll. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a year of peace, Jack, 1978. Vietnam is three years behind us. Egypt is making up with Israel. We're sending ladies to space, Jack. America, just as JFK intended, <laughs> and is firing women into space. They have capitalized. It's all because of Steely Dan. Without their music, we would still be rife with war. <laughs> Jimmy Carter would not have been elected without the help of Steely Dan. That's the vibe I'm getting. <laughs> Yes, Steely Dan as a rock band are incredibly peaceful when you compare them to the raw and rebellious nature of what you would expect from rock and roll music. They are what I personally consider dad rock. I don't know if you've ever heard that term before. Oh, I have. And I've ex more, more than I've heard the term, I've experienced dad rock. <laughs> <laughs> I've understood what I'm listening to be dad rock. I I've heard every band from like the 70s and 60s be considered dad rock, from Led Zeppelin to Pink Floyd, to where I was like, are they just calling it this because their dad listened to it? Like, is that just their criteria? Because at this point in time, fucking Arcade Fire could be considered dad rock. And if you want to tell me they aren't, uh, the door is <laughs> over there. <laughs> but when I think of dad rock, I think of a little bit more than just old rock and roll music. I think music that any kind of parent could just listen to and be like, oh, I, I, I dig this. Yeah, this is cool and hip. They're not worried about their kids turning into Satan before their very eyes. This music praises the status quo, you could say. Oh yeah, it definitely revels in the fact that it is a high gloss production. They know their music's being played in yachts 
with middle-aged white men playing golf in the middle of the ocean because I think that's what rich people do. Yeah, yeah, they just they just whack them off. They they send them off into the Atlantic and they're like <laughs> hole in one. Yeah, you could play that to your mom and dad and they wouldn't scream at the top of their lungs. I mean, I can only imagine what would happen if I played Loveless to my mother. She would probably die of a stroke. Well, I mean, we know what happened when that dog heard it. That dog exploded. Um, <laughs> That's right. Excuse me. That was that. That was that other German band. I forget. But but. Oh my God! You're right. Steely Dan is not going to be blowing up dogs. It's going to be keeping people together. Every time you play a Steely Dan record, a dog is born. I'm just going to say, <laughs> a, a little golden retriever is born. Puppies didn't exist until Steely Dan formed. <laughs> and let's just say that you did not want to see live dog birth before Steely Dan. <laughs> it was it was impossible. Steely Dan is that kind of band that not only. Are they pleasant to listen to? But they are also deceptively very technical and complex. I would dare say they are way more of a jazz band than a rock band. Yeah, yeah, I mean, but like these licks, these beats, Jack, no, no doubt. These are some, these are some smart cookies poking this up. Oh yeah, definitely. And the smart cookies that are mainly responsible for the music we hear are Donald Fagan and Walter Becker. These are two guys that knew each other since college in New York and... They are the exact antithesis of your typical rock star. They aren't sexy looking. They're not wailing at the top of their lungs. No, they were very pale skinned, wore sweaters 365 days through the year, and pretty much had no friends. They would only come out of their college dorm to play music with other people. At one point, they were performing with this man named Jay Black, who considered them the Manson and Starkweather of rock and roll because they looked like serial killers. <laughs> Now, you don't have to say someone looks like the Manson of the rock. Charles Manson wrote rock music. What? <laughs> they only look like him. Thank God they don't actually go and murder people as far as we know. That we know of, that allegedly. Know of. <laughs> no, seriously, throughout all of college, people said all they would do is hang out in their dorm room, smoke some marijuana, and not deal with people. They were pretty much like ghosts. Jack, and here I thought you were talking about reputable people, and you have to throw me this curveball. Ugh. <laughs> Ugh, I'm throwing it in the garbage. <laughs> they started off in New York, but they didn't really have a lot of success. They would just be performing with other people who needed some backup musicians because, honestly, they were very introverted. They didn't really like performing. They just liked the musical aspect of everything. And they much preferred to be behind the scenes. And luckily for them, they knew a guy named Gary Katz. Gary Katz got a job in Los Angeles, California, as a staff producer for ABC Records. That's it. That's a little ways away from New York. When Gary Katz brought up to them that he got this job and they were looking for some staff songwriters to produce some hits, they instantly jumped at the chance to not perform live. They saw Los Angeles as a new opportunity for them to flex their songwriting muscles and not have to worry about performing live whatsoever. Because they didn't want to because they looked like serial killers and they knew it. So they move to Los Angeles and they start penning these songs. And they are having a blast and they're handing it to these singers and pop musicians. And they're getting turned down. People are saying that this is way too complex for them. The musicians that they're working with don't know how to perform all of these crazy chords. And they thought it was just a little too much. So... Becker and Fagan looked at each other and said, eh, let's name ourselves after a dildo and do it ourselves. <laughs> it's named after a steam-powered dildo from a book they read. So if you are loving those funky jams, just know that they have the best heavy metal name of all time. Jesus Christ. Dad, put it down. Dad, no. You don't know what you're dealing with. 
<laughs> so keep that in the back of your mind that these guys are named after a heavy metal dildo. I just that all right, and you've been listening to Blunderphonics. <laughs> uh, we take everything back about them giving birth to puppies and how they brought peace to the world. They're they're animals. Holy, these guys are metal as fuck. <laughs> They didn't even really want to be a part of a band, so to speak. They formed Steely Dan more out of an obligation because they were writing songs that nobody wanted to sing to make up for the fact that neither of them were big fans of performing live. But knowing that the label wanted them to tour in support of an album they would record, they hired other members of Steely Dan specifically because of their stage presence in fact, Donald Fagan would often lock up during stage performances because of stage fright. Like, he was terrified of performing in front of a live audience, and he'd prefer the spotlight on somebody else. Mm, okay. They get this band together, and they start recording their debut album, Camp by a Thrill. And they had two huge hits with Do It Again and Reeling in the Years. I'm sure you've heard them at a putt-putt golf course at one point in your life. <laughs> I'm fairly certain that my father is loosely associated in my head with those songs. I just need to hear it and then BAM! Mustache. They record this album and it's a huge hit, so of course they go and start performing live, and they hate it, of course. Oh yeah. On the road, they were like, okay, we have this huge debut, we need to record a follow-up ASAP. So while they're touring, performing live, in order to sort of ease their tensions of performing in front of human beings who are disgusting creatures, they worked on their follow-up Countdown to Ecstasy. And that album, even though it's still considered a very, very wonderful record, much in line with the rest of Steely Dan's output, compared to the debut, it was not even close to as successful. They didn't really have any huge hits on it, and Fagan and Becker were not fans themselves. They saw the process as being too rushed, and because they had to tour for the debut and work on the album at the same time, performances were not really up to par with what they wanted out of their music. They blamed that all entirely on touring and decided from there on out, they would never perform live again. Ouch. They were going to be a pure studio band just like the Beatles and perfect sound so that they never have a disappointing record again. Hang on, am I, am I misremembering? Is this like a different Beatles? Because I, I vividly remember them performing, but am I, <laughs> am I wrong? The Beatles ended up stopping in 1966 once they started doing things like Eleanor Rigby and A Day in the Life. They were like, there's no fucking way we're gonna bring a whole orchestra with us. Let's just do the studio shit. Really? So they stopped doing live? Yes. Wow, I never knew that. Okay. When you're the fucking Beatles, I guess you really don't have to. They would perform live and they couldn't hear themselves over all the girls cheering. I think it's like there's the clip of yesterday being played live for the first time. And you can you can literally hear John like somewhere through the set like, shut the fuck up, he's trying to play! <laughs> there is literally a quote from Paul McCartney saying that they were sick of being a fucking boy band. We are sick of this shit. We're gonna be the best band ever now. And then it happened. Damn. <laughs> Anyways, this is our episode on the Beatles. It all comes back around, Jack. We can't escape them. Anyways, they told their other band members, we are no longer going to perform live anymore. We're just going to be a studio band. Isn't that awesome? And every single one of them in unison were like, didn't you hire us just to perform live? <laughs> and they're like, oh yeah, that's right. And they left. <laughs> so now it's just back to, back to Simon and Garfunkel or whatever their names were. Lennon McCartney. No, uh, Becker and Fagan. Okay. Steely Dan became way more known as this duo who would perform with a lot of jazz musicians. 
they would purposely look for the best of the best in Los Angeles because they knew they were the only kinds of people who could perform their music. But even though they had this access towards all of these studio musicians, Becker and Fagan still were a little bit over the top with their perfectionism. They often would bring in these top-of-the-line musicians and say, uh, that's not quite right. Uh, I didn't like that note right there. We're going to perform the whole thing over again. And they would do this. Each song over 40 times. <laughs> Can you imagine Becker and Fagan paying you just like your cheapest wage possible to come in and be told 40 times in a row? No, 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 no. Forget that. No, do it again. Do it again. <laughs> do it again. And these aren't just like... 20-year-old kids just needing a paycheck. They would get huge names like Michael McDonald. They would get a drummer and pianist who would go on to form Toto and perform with Michael Jackson. They would get Wayne Shorter, one of the most famous saxophone players in all of jazz, other than John Coltrane, but he was dead, so they couldn't get him. They tried. And they're all getting the whiplash treatment. Just, they've conglomerated into one <laughs> J.K. Simmons, and they're chucking snare drums at him. That's almost exactly right. I don't think they were raving maniacs in terms of that. I don't think they were actually going to murder anybody. But they would pretty much just say, no, we have to start over. Not quite my tempo. You're exactly right. It was a whiplash-esque situation. But... Luckily for them, everyone in Los Angeles understood that they were doing this for a reason, that they had an artistic vision, they were the only two who were making music like this, and their records were always considered masterpieces. They would consistently win Grammy after Grammy for Best Engineered Album, and they were known as the best studio band of all time, other than the Beatles, really. After recording several albums, such as Pretzel Logic, Katie Lied, and their most famous album to date, Asia, they decided to move back to New York to create a follow-up to their best album yet. And that's where we end up with Gaucho. Everything turned out great, there were no issues, and the album came out fine. Are all of Steely Dan albums 20 minutes long? No, they're all about 35, 40 minutes. This was still around the time of the vinyl record, so albums were of a reasonable length, as opposed to when you listen to music nowadays and the next fucking Drake record is two hours long and you want to be dead. <laughs> but they took a year-long break after Asia and then moved back to their home city of New York to record Gaucho. Gaucho was to be a concept album about interrelated stories involving hipsters. When I say hipster... I, I, heard, I heard you taking a breath. I don't mean like... Me. Like you, people who buy vinyl records just to look at them and say, oh, isn't that pretty? This one's lime green. <laughs> I hate you. I hate how accurate you are. When we think hipster, like if Arcade Fire or Neutral Milk Hotel made an album about hipsters nowadays, I would want to put a gun in my mouth. Hipsters were originally just jazz fans. Hipsters were known as people who liked to enjoy jazz music and they were a fan of the style. And that makes a lot more sense than them recording about people who like to sit in Starbucks. So so what you're saying is Steely Dan was like, all right, we're going to, here comes the next album. This one is about all of the people that would come to those live shows we hated playing. And, and we hated every second that they were looking at us. <laughs> That's exactly right. They were pretty much writing about all the people that want to see them but they're terrified of. I'm, I'm impressed this album didn't come across to me as like a horror jazz rock. <laughs> <laughs> they start getting a whole bunch of session musicians in there to start performing for them. And they do their natural perfectionist, no, we need to do this over and over. But they surprisingly meet a lot of resistance from the people they work with in New York. Wait a minute, they have, they have free spirits? They're thinking for themselves? <laughs> I thought you could slave drive musicians all over the country. <laughs> Only in Los Angeles, apparently. The Californian musicians really thought that they had this 
creative vision. The New York musicians were saying that they were performing these things over and over ad nauseum to the point where there was absolutely no soul in it. They felt like they were milking them out of just pure technical talent and without any of the emotion or the passion that comes with playing off the top of your head, just getting together as like a band instead of as this weird studio machine. Becker and Fagan were like, well, that's weird. People aren't listening to us tell them to play the same song a hundred times. Dire Straits frontman Mark Knopfler. He showed up because they heard Sultans of Swing and they're like, we love your guitar playing. We want you to do the solo on our song, Time Out of Mind. So he's like, okay, I'll do that. They made him record several hours of the same guitar solo over and over and over. And by the time he finally listened to the record in its final form, he was on it for about 40 seconds. <laughs> Like you, you give you give your news interview and you you go on for like an hour and a half and they use like a twenty second clip. <laughs> it makes you think, wow, they really milked me for a lot of nothing. I really, really thought you were gonna say they used his first take. <laughs> <Just> like, oh <laughs> wow. <laughs> there was no other instrument that got the most criticism than the drums. They were incredibly picky about how the drums were played, what time they were played, when the kicks would happen, when the snares would happen and they just could not get a drummer to perform what they wanted. They went through every drummer you could possibly imagine throughout New York City, and they just could not find anyone who would play to their vision. I don't know how you listen to percussion and say, that tambourine is just not doing it for me. It's just whiplash. It's just whiplash again. <laughs> now we're very much whiplash. It's it the drummer. It is literally whiplash at this point. <laughs> the drumming on the title track, Gaucho, was assembled from 46 different drum tracks. They would just Frankenstein all of these different drummers together into this abomination of a drum track. A, a, a complete, it's, it's like the Mr. Potato from Toy Story 4. Don Rickles is dead. They just cycled through a bunch of Don Rickles clips to make his voice work in that movie. <laughs> That's exactly what they've done on this album. They would have these studio musicians come in and perform the same song for six hours just for the drums. They wouldn't even be recording the rest of the band, but they needed them in there so that the drummer would try to play as perfect as possible. It's just insane. You can't, it's just nuts. Becker and Fagan just said, okay, we literally cannot get a human being to play this for us. We wish there was a way for us to just say exactly when the kick needed to happen and when the snare needed to happen. And they were telling this to their engineer, Roger Nichols. And he was like, oh, so you don't know about the drum machine. <laughs> They're like, what the fuck are you talking about? Robots. <laughs> what, do, are you talking about an android? What the fuck are you talking about, dude? You, you... The drum machine isn't necessarily like a new invention or anything like that at the time. Right. But it was very much not used in contemporary music. It was more or less like, you know when you think of the first computer, how it's like literally the size of a fucking building and all it would do is two plus two? Oh yeah. The drum machine was kind of like that and it was not used in a lot of music at all, and it definitely was never thought of to replace a live rock drummer with a drum machine specifically for rock music. If it was ever being used, it'd be for electronic music, which was supposed to sound robotic and mechanical. So what you're about to tell me 
is that Steely Dan can modernize the drum machine. That's exactly what I'm telling you. Their engineer, Roger Nichols, said, give me $150,000 and I will build you your well, very own- Stop, stop. He said, give me 150 grand. I've had enough of your bullshit. I'm leaving. He said, give me $150,000. I will build you your very own little drummer boy. And they said, fine, here's 150 grand. And he built them a little guy named Wendell. They, na they named it? He had his own name and they loved him because he could perform exactly what they wanted when they wanted. And as far as I'm aware, this is the first time a drum machine was ever used in popular music and definitely in rock music. And I bet you didn't even fucking know that when you listened to it, did you? Not at all. No, 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 no. I, that 150 grand was worth it because I couldn't, I couldn't believe what I was reading when I was reading up on this. I had no idea about this. 150 grand. I, I'm just imagining like a normal drum kit, but instead of a kick drum, it's Hall from uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey. And they were just talking <laughs> like, you're a great drummer, man. We love you. And it's just like, I am better than humans. Yeah, you are. <laughs> what was its name again? Wendell. Doesn't have the same ring. Doesn't have the same ring. It might be another no. dildo that they've heard about. I don't know. <laughs> you, you know, a, a digital pounder. That's just what I think of when I think of a drum machine. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was a very typical time for them working with session musicians, building a robot because they didn't like human beings. Unfortunately for them, a lot of other problems would start to arise. If you ever wanted to know why we should replace humans with machines, at one point in time, they were working on a song called The Second Arrangement. The Second Arrangement was kind of considered the star of the album. It was by far their producer Gary Katz and Roger Nichols' favorite song. They thought it was a masterpiece and they were like, okay, we think it's done. And they called up an intern and they said, go ahead and play that out loud so we can hear it. And the intern went up and clicked what he assumed was the play button. Now, Spencer, don't, don't, don't tell me. If you click a button expecting something to play and it doesn't play, how long do you wait before you check what's the matter? Uh, I would wait roughly the duration of the album. <laughs> you would wait 100% of the way through the song. Yeah, 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 yeah. As I'm, as I'm, uh, I'm assuming he overwrote the album. He did not overwrite the entire album. He overwrote the star song though. <laughs> and they were just sitting there hearing nothing. And I'm assuming the producer was like, why ain't it playing? And the intern's like, oh, give it some time. It'll play soon. The year, he's 1978. <laughs> We've just spent 150 grand on a drum bot named Wendell. <laughs> and the press of a button is all it takes to undo the star achievement of this record. 75% of the song was wiped. There is no way, with all the times they rehearsed and performed these songs, up to 40 times, they had to have had something to work off of. But they didn't. No, 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 because based on how you're describing it, I guarantee you they have nothing to show for the 40 takes. They would literally, I would bet you they delete it in front of that musician's face. Like, watch this. You're probably right. They probably just said, fuck it, we're deleting it because it's trash they probably didn't have a single bone of the song to work with. They probably have just been deleting it because they're like, eh, why would we need a backup? Oh. <laughs> they scrambled to perform this song again and to re-record it, but their second album they rushed and they just did not like the performances. They could not get that lightning in the bottle they originally captured with the first 50 takes and they gave up on the song. 
To this day, this song has never been recorded by the band. I'm assuming because they just think of the intern's face and they want to stab it to death. <laughs> they didn't even play it live until 2011. I guess they were really salty about it. <laughs> and you can't record that song while angry. You can't drive while angry, you'll mess up. They can't record with any emotion in their head because then they'll lose some of the technicality. <laughs> That's exactly right. So what they did instead was go into their vault of songs that they didn't feel like really matched up to the rest of their other albums. And they found one called Third World Man and just slapped it on the album at a last minute filler sort of thing. They had a guitarist perform on that a couple of years prior, and he heard somebody say that he did awesome guitar work on Gaucho, to which he replied, I live in Los Angeles. How the fuck did I play on this record? I don't remember this at all. <laughs> Man, the 70s are crazy, huh? <laughs> With them losing the star of the album and having these New York musicians just not perform up to par with them to where they are literally starting Skynet, things only continue to get worse. Early on in 1979, they were hearing how their record label, ABC Records, was undergoing some financial difficulties. And even though they were a very successful band, their record label in particular was just not succeeding. So they started talking with Warner Brothers Records, and they thought it'd be great. I mean, Steely Dan was a very successful band. Asia was performing great. It was selling a ton of copies. So why, why not? I keep hearing heat of the moment every time you say that, and I know one's a band, the other's an album, but just throwing me <laughs> off. Anyways, Warner Brothers was talking with them. They're like, yeah, you guys are great. We understand that you might be a little bit concerned about your album being released. We'll sign you. So they start getting the paperwork when they start hearing the Jaws theme. <laughs> and they, they look towards ABC Records out in the waters and it's having a hard time swimming. It's like a little kid just sort of dog paddling. And they see the letters MCA pop out of the ocean. Black eyes like a doll's eyes. <laughs> <laughs> MCA Records starts circling around ABC and they jump out of their chair and they shout, no, come back to shore, come back to shore. But it's too late. MCA Records pops out of the water and swallows ABC Records whole, buying out the entirety of Steely Dan's music. And they say, this album you're working on, it's ours now. Warner Brothers says, they are just about to sign us. No, it's ours. They didn't have any agency in this? Like, I, th I thought it was, okay. I thought it was their decision maybe to like jump labels in the first place. I'm assuming they already had the contract out there to Warner Brothers when this strange cannibalization at ABC Records happened to where there was literally a legal limbo to where Steely Dan could not release Gaucho even if they wanted to because nobody knew who owned the rights to it. MCA Records was like, we bought out ABC Records and part of that deal was we own your next album, we own your music. Warner Brothers was saying they were about to jump ship to me and they already did the paperwork, we think it should be ours. Steely Dan got fed up and said, listen, listen, we should be the guys who get to decide this. And we don't like that both of you are trying to fight over our corpse right now. And they try to fight for their own independent decision to release the album under whatever record label they want. <laughs> my lord, my lord, the artists are uprising. <laughs> There's talks of revolution. <laughs> Essentially, what would happen are a series of court battles that would last from 1979 to 1980 when the album would finally be released under MCA Records. Steely Dan, for the next year, were like, okay, we literally cannot release an album without getting our asses sued off from two different record labels. Let's take this opportunity to make sure the album is even more perfect. And they would just keep 
re-recording songs over and over just because they couldn't release it, might as well keep perfecting it. On top of all these legal troubles, the relationship between Becker and Fagan was also starting to crumble before their very eyes. You see, even though they were very much like introverted nerds, that did not stop Becker being really, really into drugs. That is the one rock-based archetype that Steely Dan was very much a part of. <laughs> Becker really loved cocaine, he loved morphine, he loved heroin, and he was constantly using drugs throughout the entirety of Steely Dan, really, but it got to a breaking point with Fagan at this point. He was saying, dude, you were doing way too many drugs. I'm worried about you and your health. And Becker was just like, ah, fuck you. I'm going to go start smoking dope with my girlfriend. <laughs> and he got back to his apartment. He found her overdosed. Oh, no, no. And she did not make it. She died and her family sued for $17 million for being the guy who introduced her to drugs in the first place. And to think this all started with sweaters and yachts. And here we are now at the, at the pit of rock and roll hell. And while he eventually settled out of court, he found himself in the midst of tabloid-based stories and media accusations that he was a toxic man who literally would kill you if you got too close to him. Not to mention that he didn't like the people who enjoyed his music. You can imagine his headspace when he started hearing people say, he's an evil, evil man. He kind of looks like Charles Manson. He was shaken by these reports. I'm assuming very, very deeply troubled by his girlfriend's passing due to drugs that he apparently introduced her to. So he just swore drugs off, never to use them ever again. He was like, I cannot let this affect me and my music. I can't let my life get dragged down by drugs. And I may be dramatically exaggerating this, but as he's coming to this realization, he's walking down a street in Manhattan and he sees this woman walking down the street as well. And he sees a taxi driving straight towards her. The taxi driver doesn't have any idea she's in the road and he sees this as an opportunity of redemption. He runs to the street and he pushes the woman out of the way of the taxi and he gets sent flying. I, Jack, what? is this the fucking death of Becker? <laughs> Becker gets dragged to the hospital. His right leg is completely obliterated. It is in shambles mm. and he is covered in his own blood, but he becomes stable. Doing okay, he needs to stay in the hospital for six months to recover. He sits in his hospital bed thinking that even though his drug use has really brought him down, he realizes that music is the center of his life and he needs to dedicate himself. So this motherfucker, with his right leg completely useless at this point, calls up his buddy, Donald Fagan, and says, hey, let's get working on our fucking music. I need a $150,000 leg. He helps write Gaucho through a fucking 1979 telephone. This isn't a collaboration in GarageBand. We're saying he had a landline and he wrote this album in a hospital bed. Holy shit. Holy shit. So that's how, oh my God. Not only that, but he started suffering secondary infections due to his operations, so he was even sicker than that. And not only that, but he's just sworn off morphine right before getting thrown in the hospital for a demolished leg. They're like, do we need to put you on painkillers? He's like, no more drugs! I Please, can't do I'm it! St stop, I'm straight edge! <laughs> it was eventually finished and released. Take that, my bloody Valentine, you assholes. None of you got hit by a fucking car. <laughs> 
I'm sure Kevin Shields after some point was begging for it to happen. Belinda Butcher was just, <laughs> I wouldn't disagree. Belinda's like, yeah, it's fine. He, Kevin Shields ran over an engineer with a car. It's fine. He, he's quirky that way. Cue that Morrissey song about a 10 ton truck. The album was finally released in November, 1980. Like I said, under the name of MCA Records, they had this iron grip on Steely Dan's soul, but they eventually would leave this record label after Gaucho and signed to Warner Brothers Records much later in their career. The band was not entirely happy with its release, uh, mostly because when MCA finally had the official legal right to release the album, they said, this album's going to be our test at a new pricing policy. <laughs> we are going to have this album be under our superstar pricing policy, where it was going to cost more than your average album. In exchange for better quality? They were using Steely Dan as a guinea pig that, hey, everyone knows Steely Dan is a studio band. You are going to get a top quality product. So instead of spending $9, you're going to spend $10. That doesn't sound like a huge deal to me in 2019. Doesn't sound like that big of a deal, but the record label is just like, nah, it's going to be more expensive. So yeah, they were very unhappy with MCA Records pretty much charging people an extra buck just because they knew they could get away with it. Not to mention that MCA Records was trying to profit off of the album when Steely Dan probably didn't even think they deserved to overcharge the album. But they ended up getting sued by jazz composer Keith Jarrett who once he heard the album said that they ripped off one of his compositions, to which Steely Dan said, oh yeah, I guess we did do that, didn't we? Oh and shit. And they got sued for a couple million dollars. <laughs> Keith Jarrett got a co-writer on there and that probably didn't make the record label very happy either. So Gaucho was released and it did receive some favorable reviews. People said it's classic Steely Dan. It's a little bit more groovy and atmospheric, but you're still getting top of the line, well-performed music, but it wasn't without its critics. Some people said it was soulless and that it, their perfectionism was becoming too mechanical and that this album was not even close to the same sort of quality as Asia and that Steely Dan was a little bit kind of up their own ass with perfectionism for just the sake of technicality. The album would end up winning a Grammy for being the best engineered album, which was very typical for a Steely Dan record. Uh, the album would sell platinum, so it did very well. And Donald Fagan got his own platinum copy of the album. Walter Becker got his own platinum copy. And I shit you not, Wendell got his very own platinum record as well because <laughs> of his contributions as the first rock and roll drum machine. Thank you for the recognition. I'm assuming it was technically for Roger Nichols, their engineer, but they wanted to be cute about it and said Wendell. And Roger was like, oh, that's so cute. But when the robot actually started asking for it, he got a little bit worried. <laughs> and then it started getting red eyes and started chasing him around the house. And that kind of wraps up Gaucho for us. Uh, Becker and Fagan were a little bit disappointed with the fact that the album wasn't getting huge acclaim like Asia. I am assuming a lot of the troubles they had making the album really dissuaded them from ever wanting to record ever again. And with Keith Jarrett suing them, the girlfriend's family suing them, they said enough is enough. And in 1981, they broke up. What? Say it ain't so. It, it's true. They, they saw this as a sign that they should quit while they're ahead. I mean, Gaucho was still well received, even though not quite as well. And they're like, we might as well stop now. You know, Jack, you hate to see such a dream team break up after they just invested $150,000 into Wendell. Where's he gonna go? <laughs> Where's he gonna go? He ended up homeless. He lives in a box oh. now. Well, at least he had that record. 
Becker, now being completely clean from any drug use, moved to Maui and became an avocado rancher with his family. Fagan would go on to continue in the music scene. Don't just roll over that. <laughs> Don't just pretend I'm not thinking of questions about this. <laughs> became an avocado farmer. I don't know what led him to being an avocado farmer. He was just like, yeah, that seems about right. That that seems in line with my career. I've done everything. Avocados, <laughs> though. That's the next step. Fagan would continue to be very involved in the music scene, producing records and writing and composing. And they took a long break before they finally reunited in 1992 and released their first studio album since Gaucho in 2000. 20 years after the fact. With all of that being said, I wanted to ask you, Spencer, what is your opinion on Gaucho after hearing all of these fantastical stories? Uh, I take it all back. This is not the wholesome messiah I thought I, I needed to guide me away from rock and roll. In fact, it seems they are, um, they are the very thing they fought to destroy. <laughs> and, um, and because of that, two out of 10. <laughs> oh my God, holy shit, that's a jump. Two out of 10. And I will, I will be taking appeal appointments. Uh, maybe you'll find a lot more to enjoy out of the rest of their catalog when they were just free spirits wanting to make perfect pop music. Listen, Jack, you can, you can implore me all you want. You can push and prod me, but Masayoshi Takanaka didn't drive anyone to OD. So I'll be <laughs> checking out more of his albums. Thank you very much. I don't even know if that guy is fucking real, Spencer. Uh, I've <laughs> seen him. I don't believe you. I don't think this man truly exists. I, I think he was completely made up by the Japanese government just to get you to enjoy jazz music. Well, if that's the case, I'm going into my VR headset and I'm never coming out because I'm moving in with Masayoshi and his sweet riffs. In case you were wondering about where Steely Dan is going to go on from here, unfortunately, we only have one member left of the band. Walter Becker passed away just two years ago due to throat cancer. Donald Fagan wanted to sort of continue on as his own person and not go under the Steely Dan name. He was convinced by promoters and people who wanted him to perform to keep going with the Steely Dan name because he can make more money that way. He was sued by Walter Becker's family because once Walter Becker died, they got 0% of his shares of writing music because Walter Becker and Donald Fagan said as early as 1972, if one of them were to leave the band or perish, they would relinquish all of their monetary gains from their albums. That just sounds like the weirdest blood pact that two guys make <laughs> at the bottom of the big dungeon. They're like, all right, slash your fucking palms. <laughs> so if you wanted to think that Steely Dan is continuing on, Donald Fagan's going on in his memory. It's a little bit more bittersweet than just like, oh, he's trying to perform in memory of his friend. Uh, he's still going strong, he's performing live, which is the exact opposite of what they wanted to do, so eh. But that's where they are nowadays, so I hope I ruined your good vibes, your fun energy, Spencer. Is there anything you would like to plug? Uh, you know what? I'm gonna throw a curveball. I've been enjoying Dumb and Awful lately. Uh, I've plugged Mark's Madness before, I believe. It's my brother's uh, communist literature podcast. Uh, but let me tell you something. Reading books is uh, is really hard, and it's really threatening and intimidating, which is why I would direct you to these boys who basically give you all the theory you need without having to do a book report. They are three hilarious guys, for one thing. And I just I encourage you to give them a try. They're pretty uh, knowledgeable and, and entertaining, so... 
Enjoy that. Dumb and awful. And what kind of theory do they talk about? A leftist theory. Oh, okay. You're, you're going to play towards our communist audience. I'm just saying, for all them democratic socialists who are uh, terrified of reading books, it's a neat thing. Alternatively, check out the Cock and Bull podcast. If you would like to recommend more albums for us to discuss on Blunderphonics, please check me out on Rate Your Music. I go under the name of The Dissonant Opinion. I'm thinking about starting on actually reviewing albums on there. I'm thinking about trying to engage a bit more on that website, so. But other than that, I am still working on creating music, and I'm working on a song right now, but much like Steely Dan, I want to make sure it's absolutely perfect, so you might have to tune in two years from now. I promise I will have more information on that on the next episode, and I will have a lot more to plug on the next episode, because we were feeling like the next episode would be a great place for us to end off this first season of Blunderphonics. We've talked about a lot of crazy stories, and there's no better one to end on than the legendary, infamous, batshit crazy Captain Beefheart and his magic band performing on Trout Mask Replica. All right, all right. I'm sick of making Spencer listen to good music. I like it when I make him listen to music that makes him want to kill me. I'm strapping my helmet on. Oh, buddy, I'm ready. Oh, I'm ready. I'm going to buy the vinyl for this one. Oh, my God. Can I have half of it? Yes. Thank you all so much for listening to Blunder Phonics. We can't wait to have you all join us on the final episode of season one. Thank you all so much for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Peace. Peace.